With that said, let's open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John, the fourth book in your New Testament, the Gospel of John. And we have been in the Gospel of John for quite some time, everybody. If you're keeping score at home, I think we started in September, and we have been going with the Gospel of John. We're going to be ending the first week in July is when we're going to be ultimately landing the plane here. And so we are right in the middle of the farewell speech of Jesus, what we call the upper room discourse, that we have the acts of Jesus, the signs of Jesus in up to chapter 12, and he always says the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, but in chapter 12, some people come, them Gentiles come, and they're like, hey, we want to see you, Jesus, and Jesus is like, the time has come, the hour has come, and from that time on, he starts speaking to his disciples about this is the hour has come, and we go into the upper room, we have the feet washing, we have the Lord's Supper, and Jesus launches into last words, last words before he goes to suffer and be tried and go to the cross and die, last words. And in the Jewish world, last words, a farewell speech, carried a certain amount of weight to it. That these were heavy words. These were the words that as someone on their deathbed might say something and think, this is what they really need to hear. And some of us have had words spoken to us on a deathbed by someone we love and we realize we remember them. We remember them with a weight to them. And it's been so interesting when Jesus is about to go to suffering and death to ask the question, like, what did Jesus think was super important? And, he, and as we looked at this, we noted that, like, Jesus says, what you really need to know is you need to know my relationship with the Father. And that the Holy Spirit is involved in this, and the Holy Spirit is going to come. And that you guys are going to need to abide. You're going to need to abide in the vine. And then, but also that you're going to be in the world, but not of the world. And we just think about these, these themes in these last four chapters that we've been going through and just how significant they are. And as much as a farewell speech carries weight, Jesus transitions from a farewell speech into what we're going to look at today, which is a farewell prayer. The last prayer that he's going to pray for not only himself, but his disciples, but also for those who will come after them after them that will believe based on their message. And so what we get here is a little bit of a window into not only what Jesus thinks is significant, but also into the kind of the spirituality of Jesus. And I think um, it was so great to have Michelle read that passage, and I, I should, we should pay her a little extra because there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of words in there, and it, it kind of these phrases, they come over. But isn't that kind of the way our prayers go sometimes? They don't follow a linear pattern. We go to certain themes and we come back to them and we see a little bit of really the heart and mind and spirituality of Jesus. And so what I'd like to do is just look at this idea that Jesus prays for his disciples and to look at what exactly he prays for his disciples about. A couple things about this. In 17.9, if you turn there, let's just get started in this. The first thing to note is that Jesus is going to pray for his disciples. He says this in 17.9, I am praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And while his prayer is going to be for his immediate disciples, the 11, we're going to, Judas doesn't make the cut, he's the son of perdition, right, which we read about later, but he prays for the 11, but what's interesting, what's significant about this, and in your outline, I'm moving this point up, 
from the bottom in 1720. I think this is one of the most significant things about this passage for me. As I've come to this passage, I've, I've, I've taught on this passage, and, and this passage has been a significant passage for me. In 1720, look at what he says. He says, I don't ask for these only, the 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And I think this is so, I think this is so significant to pause to, to, on this note that John wants to make it clear as he writes down this gospel, he's writing down these, these words of Jesus, he wants to make it clear to his readers, who his readers were not people who would have been eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus. His readers would not have been present at the crucifixion. His readers would not have been eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Nevertheless, his readers believe in Jesus. And for John, it's very important to remember the words of Jesus that when Jesus, on the last night, he doesn't just pray for the apostles, the twelve. He doesn't just pray for them. He prays for you. That on the last night of Jesus' life, it just wasn't his immediate followers who were on his mind. It was those who were going to believe based on their message. And so this section is so, I think it's so significant because this idea that we can say by reading John that who was on Jesus' mind as he was preparing to go to the cross, you were. I do not ask for these alone, the 11 who have followed me. I ask on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. Those who could not see my signs who could not see my death, who could not see my resurrection, they're still going to believe. Blessed are those who see, who do not see and yet believe. And so like the man born blind, we've never seen Jesus, yet we believe in him. And that, that's, that's what, one of the things that John wants to point out here. And so we all get brought into this moment as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He says, look, i got to pray I, there's going to be a lot of people who believe based on their message. I want to pray for them right now. And so one of the things I want to do is he prays not only for his disciples, the immediate 11, but also for us. I want us to just think about this as all of these things. What does Jesus pray for for his followers? What does he think is important to pray for on the eve of his death? What does he pray for? And so this is what this is what he, what does he want to say about us? And these are, there's four things that Jesus is going to say, is going to pray about and for, and he wants us to know about as we go, as he goes to the cross and as we go into the world, there are four things that we are, that we are given, that we are guarded, that we are set apart, and that we are one. These are the four things I want to look at. So the first thing is that we are given. Look at verse 6, 17, 6. The first thing we need to note is that we have been given to Jesus by the Father, 17.6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I think the first thing we need to note is that we as followers of Jesus, the very first thing that we need to know is that we have been given to Jesus. That ultimately, the, our first 
if, if we were to talk about who we belong to, we belong to our Creator. We belong to the Father. The Father is the one who has all authority, and He gives it to Jesus, and He gives us to Jesus. Now, one of the great mysteries, now it's like we walk right into this one, one of the great mysteries of a life of faith, and if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, one of the great mysteries that we have to deal with as we think about our own life of faith is how there is this interplay between the will of God, God's sovereign will and plan, and our own decision making. Has anybody ever thought about this before? You're like, no, I haven't ever thought about that, Pastor Craig. Let's just go on to the next thing. And okay, amen to that. No, so there's a few things that we have to kind of, we have to ask about this, that we have been given to Jesus. What do we do with this idea? Do I choose to follow Jesus or does God choose me? Does, do, do I give my life to Jesus or does the Father give it to Jesus? Which comes first, my choice or God's choice? Like, how do we deal with this? I think in, in our experience, we're like, I make decisions all day long. But maybe sometimes we're like, but God is sovereign over the universe. What do I do with that? Okay. Now, I would just want to make this clear. Um, I've taught in um, multiple Christian institutions, and I have had many friends and even professors that disagree about what emphasis to put on what. And I would say that there is, there is an enduring question about the role of divine sovereignty and human freedom. Some people like to talk about divine sovereignty. Some people like to talk about human freedom or human response, whatever that is. And while I would affirm that there are smart people who take different perspectives, I would note that among all, among all Christian traditions, one of the things that we need to note is that even if we are saying, I decided to follow Jesus, like the great song says, I have decided. Like, whether you are Calvinist or Arminian, you can make a decision to follow Jesus. But one of the things that we have to understand theologically is that across the board in Christian theological traditions is that God is the first one to move. Theologically speaking, we are not the first ones to move toward God. We have been hamstrung by sin. Sin has moved us in a direction away from God. The fall of Adam and Eve, the fall has gone and pervaded the world. And so we need God to do something within us to begin the process of moving towards him. Now, some people don't even like that language. Like, but I would just say this, that whether you want to talk about choosing or deciding or whether you want to talk about responding to God, God is the first mover in our salvation process. And in this passage, Jesus is like, yeah, Father, you gave them to me. Like we could look at it, we could look at it phenomenologically, like, well, that Philip decided to follow Jesus, or Nathaniel decided to follow Jesus, or Peter decided to follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, when Jesus is praying, he's like, Nope, Father, you gave them to me. And so just one of the things I think for us to understand. And this is going to be important because he's going to say, look, if, if God is the one who has given, the Father is going to be the one who keeps you.
And so there's something important theologically about this idea that indeed God is the one, the Father is the one who chooses, who elects, who is the first mover in this process. It is the Father who sends his Holy Spirit to begin to regenerate us so that we can even make a decision to follow Jesus. And that, that's neither Arminian or Calvinist, that both of them would say that. Now there's differences about how you might go from there, but that, that is a core truth in the Christian tradition. God is the first mover in your salvation process. You might not understand it. You might understand it later and come at it. But this is one thing that that Jesus says, hey, if I'm going to pray for them, if I'm going to pray for them, one thing I want them to know is that you have been given to Jesus. You have been given to Jesus. His disciples were given to him by the Father out of the world And ultimately, we belong to the Father. Jesus says in 17.7, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. So the Father not only gives them them, but he gives them the message. He gives them the message. And the message, these words are given by the Father. And then Jesus gives these words to his disciples. So they have been given to Jesus. The Father has also given the message to Jesus. Jesus passes on that message to his disciples. And that message is essentially, Jesus has come from the Father. And this is the message, this is the message that is going to hold them. And I suppose this this message, Jesus has come from the Father, the Father has sent Jesus, I think this is the fundamental question about Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is Is he a good human teacher? Or is, with good ideas, or is he sent by God to reveal something about who God is? Not just a good human, a good guy, but more than that. At least that, if not more than that. So we have seen that we are given by the Father. It also says that we are guarded. We are guarded by the Father. Look at 1711. 1711. It says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. That word keep is a Greek verb, tereo, which means either to keep or to guard. In 1712, he will actually say, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. I have guarded them. So Jesus' first prayer to the Father is that the Father would continue on this keeping or guarding you and I. And, and t- this question about what is, what is the means of keeping or guarding the disciples, it says that they would be kept in your name, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Lord. Jesus goes on, he says that he will keep, I will keep them in your name, in your name. And there's a couple things here. Um, as we look at 1712 again, I have guarded them, not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So a couple things here. One, we've been given to Jesus by the Father, and we have been kept or guarded by both the Father and by Jesus, except for Judas. 
Judas is the son of destruction. Um, anyway, two things. One, one, you got the one who's lost, and he's referring to Judas. He is the son of, whether it's the son of destruction, it's really, if you, it's hard to translate. There's a play on words. He's been lost, and he's the son of destruction. Both of those words are the same word in Greek. It's a play on words. And so he is the son of lostness. Judas becomes the son of lostness. He's probably referring to the idea of Psalm 41, that he who eats my bread has betrayed me, has, has lifted his heel against me. But he has been lost. Judas has been lost. But you have been kept. The rest of the disciples have been guarded have been kept. Now, here's the question. What does it mean to be guarded or kept in the name of the Father? Jesus' prayer is that we are kept in your name, in the name of the Father. And I think what this is, is an allusion back to John 15 about this idea of how do you keep someone, how do you guard someone? The way guarding takes place is by that people abide in the vine, in the, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Lord. That's how we are kept or guarded, by being in the name of the Lord. Holy Father, in verse 11, keep them in your name, which you have given me, even that they may be one. One of the, in the book of Proverbs, it talks about um, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. He who is in trouble will run into it and be saved. And Jesus is saying, your name, your name is victory. I'm just kidding, okay? <laughs> okay, yeah, but, but you get the idea. Thank you, everybody here. Um, but this idea that we run into the name of the Lord, that the name of the Lord is, is the character of the Lord, it's kind of the posture of the Lord, it's the, it's the protection of the Lord, that those who fear the Lord will run into his name like a strong tower. They will be found in him. And this idea that they will be found abiding in the vine, in his name. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. This is why whatever we do, the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart, as if to the Lord you do it in his name. In the name of Jesus. And this is, and we're guarded by doing that. That's a way that he keeps us, that he protects us. How else are we guarded by Jesus and the Father? Look at 17, 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus says, I have given them your word. Your word is, it's not just the Bible. Now, the Bible, yes. But when John is writing this, he didn't have the Bible. Your word is the message that Jesus has come from the Father. Jesus has come from the Father. The Father has sent Jesus. So, again, how, how are we protected? How are we, we're in the world and we need to be guarded and protected that the Father's going to watch us, going to guard us, going to protect us. And he does that by, hey, abide in me, abide in me. But I'm also going to give you this message, and the message is this. Jesus has come from the Father. The Father has sent Jesus. That's, that's the word. And he says, look, that's what you're going to preach. The world is not going to like that message. But that message is going to guard you. It's going to keep 
you. Seventeen fifteen says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, you guard them from the evil one. This isn't the first time in the Bible that we hear about keep us from evil. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples to say, deliver us from evil. And another way to translate that is to say, deliver us from the evil one. And this seems to be, this seems to be a stock prayer of early Christians, which is this. We live in the world, and we're out here, we're exposed in the world. We're, we've, we're, given, we're given the abide in the vine, and we're given a message, and here, but we're just exposed in the world, kind of like Jesus was. And so the prayer is, keep them from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. And the Father, in his sovereignty, has chosen simply how that will take place. There are no assurances of safety. There are no assurances. There's only the assurance that we will be kept by the Father and by Jesus. So we are given by the Father. We are kept or guarded by the Father. And it also says that we are set apart by the Father. Look at 1717. 1717 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, there's three, two words there. Two words, two words. Um, sanctify and consecrate. And these verbs are simply the verbs to sanctify something is to set it apart. It's to make it holy. Now, we don't oftentimes use these words in our daily life, do we? Okay? Like, for example, here's, here's what, what does it mean to make something holy or to set something apart? Um, in the ancient world, it would mean like you made ten pots and you take one of them and you dedicate it to like the temple so it's only used for worship purposes. That's taking one thing and setting apart. And what they would say is that pot then is holy to the Lord. It's set apart. Um, like Samson, when he was born, he was a Nazarite. He was to be dedicated to the Lord. Samson like blew it, okay? But the Lord still used him, okay? I don't know if you've read that story of Samson. Samson does everything and dedicated the Lord. The Lord still uses him. Here's how we probably understand. I told you before, this summer, I'm training hike, and um, one of the things I did was I bought hiking shoes, okay? So one of the things that, and Kelly was like, when are you going to wear your hiking shoes? I'm like, I will only wear them on trails. They will never touch the ground of concrete. I'm just kidding, not like that, okay? But I'm only going to wear, I'm going to dedicate them. They have been made holy unto the trails. I won't wear them for anything else. They're not daily usage. Like some of you guys, runners, how many runners we have out here? That's a dangerous question. You probably have running shoes. But they are not walk-around-everyday shoes, right? They are only for running. You have set them apart. And you probably have other things like this, other things that you might have that only get used in circum certain circumstances. Like our kids played, all of our kids played basketball. 
and um, they have a, um, we have a basketball in the garage, but don't you dare ever use that basketball on an outdoor court. It has been set apart. It has been made holy. Only for gym usage. Only for that. And you guys might have things like this as well, that there are certain tools you will only use. Every job is a certain tool. It has been set apart for a certain usage. Don't you dare use it for something else. Okay? Like all these hacks, like life hacks, where you use something made for something else to do something else, that flies in the face of holiness of setting something apart for particular usage. I was created for this, right? Like pallets were made for carrying, for forklifts to lift things up, but now churches have them all over their stages, right? It's an affront. It's an abomination. I'm just kidding. It's not. It's not. But you get the idea. So what, what he says, Jesus prays that I want you to be sanctified. I want you to be set apart. I want it so that only God ultimately decides what, your purpose is you might live in the world and yeah you might have a job in the world and you might do certain things but ultimately ultimately it is God who will task you with what he wants you to do in this world sanctify them set them apart they're not just they're not just another Joe Schmo in the world I have taken them out of the world. I've chosen them out of the world. I've given them to Jesus. And now we're sending them back in, set apart. Sanctify them. And Jesus says, I consecrated myself for them so that they might be set apart. Now, that doesn't mean walled off from the world, but it means that whatever you're doing, whatever job you're in, whatever friendships you're in, because you're in the world and you're going to be in the world, but not of the world, but ultimately it is God who is the one who can task you and move you as God wants to move you. Set them apart, Father. Set them apart. Like my hiking shoes, like the basketball, like running shoes, like that they would be used for particular purposes. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified in the truth. Not just, I think sometimes, like I said last week, sometimes we're asked to be set apart, but we just choose weird, quirky. No, no, no. What, set, what sets us apart is not just that we're weird people. I mean, some of you are weird people, okay? But that's not your defining factor. I mean, I, look, we're all weird. We all have our idiosyncrasies. But it's not our weirdness that sets us apart. It's the fact that we are devoted to Jesus. That's what sets us apart. Not our political longings, not our political alignments, not our, not our, our, our uh, kind of the, the things that, that we like in terms of entertainment or our music or whatever. What sets us apart is that we've been called by Jesus. And sometimes we forget that just because we kind of, just because people don't like us, it's not necessarily because of our love for Jesus. It might be something else, and we don't want to confuse our own kind of quirkiness with the call to holiness. Jesus says, set them apart, sanctify them, because you've taken them out of the world. You've been given to Jesus, and now you're being sent back into the world, sanctify them, set them apart, consecrate them. We are set apart for dedicated use by Jesus. We are a tool, a, a beloved son or daughter 
that he can at any moment say, hey, I really need you to do this, and we would say, yes, Lord, here I am, because we've been set apart. We have been given, we have been guarded, and we have been set apart. For what? That we might be one. Look at 1711. I'm sorry, 1720. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, sometimes people talk about this is about unity, like this verse is about unity. Okay, in part. Um, the goal is not that the church would be unified. The goal is that the church would be in the Father and in the Son. The Son and the Father are unified, and the, the goal is that the church would then be part of that unity, uni unity and truth. It doesn't mean that we give up some of our convictions just for the sake of unity. Okay? The goal is that we would be in the Father and in the Son. I'll read it again. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I think unity is a byproduct, right? Unity is a byproduct of our abiding. We abide in the Father. We abide in the Son. We abide in the vine. And we find, our own, we find ourselves together abiding and we find that we are unity, we're unified around the person of Jesus, the, the glory of the Father. Built on the unity of the Father and the Son, the image of, a, of abiding in the life of Jesus, we are set up for sharing the life and love of the Father through abiding in Jesus and the Holy Spirit abiding in us. We have this great, we talked about the Trinity and the Trinitarian formulation that the Father, salvation is back at being reconciled to the Father through the work of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Father loves the Son, the Father loves the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness of the Son, the Son is wanting to glorify the Father, and all of that love is going on, and we find ourselves in the middle of that, abiding in that love, abiding in the love of the Trinity, right? And as we abide, we find ourselves surrounded by others who are wanting to abide. And Jesus says, look, the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, if you're abiding in our love and you are loving each other, that the world, I, I ask for all these, that they all may be one. The glory you've given me, I've given them that they may be one, even as we are one. 1723, I in them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. So that, what? The world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them, even as you loved me. I think it's interesting. The church, unified in abiding, is a sign to the world that Jesus has been sent from the Father. The church, okay, unified around abiding in Jesus is a sign to the world 
that Jesus has been sent by the Father. I think, um, I think we see glimpses of this in the church. I think we see glimpses of, of this in the church. That we see examples where the church gathers around in love in, in a great sense of unity around loving Jesus, that the love of Jesus has pervaded our lives and we find ourselves, even with people that weren't, you know, we might not ever know, we wouldn't have known anywhere else. And we start loving each other, even though we, we, I have no reason to even know a person. There are some of you, I would have no reason to know, save that I believe in Jesus. There are other people that you, you in here you would never ever know but they believe in Jesus, and they want to worship Jesus, so you have come together, and there's, you know, there's unity around that. And I think we see great examples of that. Then that community cares for one another, and the world sees that, and they realize Jesus is for real. It's compelling when we see the truth and grace of God made known by a body that cares for one another. when we're all pulling in the same direction for the gospel. I think, though, that it's also interesting, this is the last thing that Jesus says, that they may be one. It's the last thing at the end of his prayer, at the end of the discourse, this farewell discourse, it's the very last thing. And I think it's probably the last thing because it's probably the hardest thing in the church. I think in my lifetime, I was kind of reflecting on this, there have been times, there have been times where I feel like I have I've experienced some opposition, like spiritual opposition, from, from outside the church, okay? But if I'm going to be honest, most of the hard feelings I've had as a believer have come from uh, attacks from inside the church. I know that sounds, like, I even, it even sounds hard to say. It's so difficult to even say, but I, I would imagine in a room like this, you have probably experienced that whenever you have a gathering of people, you have the presence of the Spirit, you have the presence of the flesh, and you have the presence of the devil. And we hope that the Spirit wins. In this room, you've got a mix of all of those things. Whenever God is at work, there's always going to be the movement of the Spirit, the presence of the flesh, and the presence of the, of the opponents. And it is sometimes, sometimes the flesh and the devil are so involved in the church that it's hard to see where the Spirit is moving. I've talked about this before. It's like whale watching, like God, oh look, there's God. And then you're like, where'd God go? He went down. He took a big breath and went down, right? And now all I see is the flesh and the devil. And that happens. It's hard. You see news stories. I was just talking with Glenn about this. You hear news stories. Seems like weekly you hear news stories about a fall or somebody with their hand in the till or some kind of uh, a scandal of some kind within the church. And those are hard things. I think, but at the end of the day, I think one of the things we need to recognize is that Our faith in Jesus has to connect us in love with other believers. Our faith in Jesus has to, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the movement of Jesus, our love, our, our faith in Jesus has to connect us in love, not just with our own preferences so that we can like have beef with people in the congregation, but that it needs to connect us in love and not just in love to the people in our congregation, like that we would actually watch what we say about other churches. And again, I've talked about it from up here, like I, I think the Billy Graham Modesto Accords that he did with his, with, his, uh, with his crew 
he would say one of the things was we never want to say something bad about another church. And there might be times where I'll slip up on that, but for the most part, I want to make it clear, I never want to say anything negative or bad about another church. It's not my place. You know what my place is? Is to love them. Kelly might hear me say stuff. She'll be like, I'll be like, don't tell anybody this. Like, I can't say it to anybody else, right? But the thing is, like, look, they will know the truth about Jesus if we are one. How are we doing? We got work to do. We got people to love. We got churches across the city that we want to love. My job is to root for every church to be full in the city of Orange every Sunday. It's my job. You're like, your job's for us. I'm like, no, it's not. My job is to root for every church in the city of Orange to be full. We're certainly going to focus here, but whenever I'm with other pastors and I hear things going well, I root for them. I want them to do well. I want I want this to be a place, and for the grace of God, the city of Orange has been a wonderful place to do ministry because there are so many pastors who love each other and are rooting for each other. I think gone are the days where we're like, like you know, we're the 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 Christianity is the big movement on campus, and like we we own the culture. Like those days are gone, everybody, and they're not coming back. They're gone. Lock arms with other churches in this community to love Jesus and proclaim the gospel. We are on the same team. And I, I'm, I, I kind of, I'm saying this, I haven't gotten that sense from many people, but I have gotten that sense from other, some other people, like, we're the only ones doing it right. Like, okay, well, good for you, excellent. Let's lock arms. Can we lock arms? Like, the Lord is at work over here too. Like, let's at least acknowledge that. And let's also acknowledge, like C.S. Lewis did, in mere Christianity, that yeah, there's a, there's a big room that we all gather in, every believer across time and the world that we all gather in to worship Jesus, but when we, when we need spiritual formation, we have to go to the smaller rooms around the hall. We need spiritual formation, so I have to go to a local gathering because there might be emphasis on something. Our tradition has done a great job of teaching the Bible as an emphasis, we think that great things happen when we study and learn the Bible. There are other traditions that think it's a great idea to listen and about the empowerment of the Spirit. There are other traditions that look at social justice and making sure that God's will and, ju- and justice is done on this earth. Those are, gr- But it's very difficult to get one body that's doing all of those things and emphasizing each one the same way. That's why we have these smaller rooms off the hall. But we can all gather in the great room and say, we believe in Jesus, worthy is the lamb who was slain. But we can, for formation, we can go off into different corners, and we can emphasize certain things, and sometimes we might even learn some things from these other, these other rooms that we haven't gone in before. But we respect them, and they respect, we respect all the rooms around. And again, this idea that as we abide in the Father and the Son, abiding in the vine, we are able to lock arms with those who are abiding. And that's what we want to do. That's what, and that's what, on the last night of Jesus' life, that's what he's praying for, that his followers would do that. And I would just say, as we walk in the grace and the truth of who Jesus is, that would be our goal.